0: In August of 1957, a man named William Rowe wrote and signed a sworn affidavit in the city of Edmonton, Alberta. The affidavit referred to a sighting he claimed to have had two years earlier, in 1955, in British Columbia. Edited by myself for reasons of clarity and occasional racism, it stated, Ever since I was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, I have studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. But the most incredible experience I ever had with a wild creature occurred near a little town called Tejon Cash, British Columbia, about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. I had been working on the highway near Tejon Cash for about 2 years in October 1955. I decided to climb five miles up Mika mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came inside of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly bear near that spot the year before. This one was only about 75 yards away but I didn't want to shoot it for I had no way of getting it out so I sat down on a small rock and watched, my rifle in my hands. I could see part of the animal's head in the top of one shoulder. A moment later it raised up and stepped out into the opening. Then I saw it was not a bear. This, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly towards me. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown, silver-tipped hair. But as it came closer, I saw by its breasts that it was female. And yet, its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms, and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionally than a man's, about five inches wide at the front, "'and tapering to much thinner heels. "'It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in, "'within twenty feet of me, and squatted down on its haunches. "'Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes towards it "'and stripped the leaves with its teeth. "'Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. "'I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. "'Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, "'for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush.' A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still, in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant hairy Indians that live in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also, many claim are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I hereby declare the above statement to be in every part true to the best of my powers of observation and recollection. Signed, William Rowe, August 26, 1957. In its particulars, Rowe's sighting matches with earlier cases we examined in part one of this mini series, Bigfoot before 1958. Cases such as that of Elkanah Walker in 1840, the Ape Canyon incident of 1924 and John Burns' popularisation of the term Sasquatch in his articles starting in 1929. But Rowe's account of a big-breasted female Bigfoot is thought to have had a big impact on a later sighting, one of a similarly well-endowed lady Bigfoot, a sighting that was filmed becoming not only the single most well-known symbol of the entire field of cryptozoology, but also one of the most examined pieces of film, literally, in the history of cinema. I'm talking, of course, about the Patterson-Gimlin film. But you knew that, didn't you? That's why you're here. But who was William Rowe, really? And to what degree did his now-forgotten sighting create a template that Roger Patterson would later use to gain worldwide infamy? Both questions are debated furiously by true believers and by sceptics. I'm Kean, and this is Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that asks why do people believe weird things? And when does fringe thinking become dangerous? Stick with us for part two of Bigfoot before 1958, in which we do our best to untangle the sticky origins of Bigfoot's big break into the mainstream in the middle of the monster-haunted 20th century. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the show that believes there's a single answer to everything and it's usually wrong. Tonight, I'm coming to you once again from the Wide Atlantic Weird cabin. It's a rustic wooden structure, solidly built and with no frills, but comfortable, with a well-stocked library of books on the paranormal, as you'd expect, as well as one of those globes that opens up to reveal a well-stocked drinks cabinet, also as you'd expect. The cabin is, of course, hidden somewhere in the forests of deepest, darkest Essex, In front of it is my campfire circle, a fine place to spend a warm summer evening watching the sun turn the trees to gold, while sipping on a cold beverage as the night closes in and the sounds of the forest begin to take a turn for the mysterious. Tonight I'm drinking Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, a classic American IPA from the early days of the American craft beer revival, an old friend to hipster beer snobs everywhere, and one that reminds me fondly of my own days in the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest many years ago. If you haven't listened to part one of Bigfoot before 1958, well, I recommend that you do so right away. I'll be waiting right here. I have a nice beer and I've got time. So off you go. Otherwise, we'll get stuck into the next crucial encounter in in our chronology. I have a confession first. The title, Bigfoot before 1958, doesn't cover all of what I want to talk about in this series. See, I chose the year 1958 Because it's the year the Jerry Crew footprints became world famous and made Bigfoot a household name. By examining the sightings that predate this crucial case, I wanted to see whether Bigfoot reports were already fairly consistent or whether the Crew footprints helped to create Bigfoot as the monster we all recognise today. Now, I realise that to tell the whole story, we'll not only have to cover the 1958 Crew case in detail but also dip into a few details, at least, of the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film Incident as well, both being instrumental in shaping the modern myth of Bigfoot. So the title of the series is no longer strictly accurate. Well, it's my show. I can do these things if I want to. So, let's return to William Rowe, the man who saw a female Sasquatch in British Columbia back in 1955. He's the guy who wrote the sworn affidavit describing what he saw. As I mentioned, his story has not been as well remembered as other more sensational Sasquatch encounters. In fact, he's really only brought up nowadays in order to discredit the later Patterson-Gimlin film. Many prominent researchers, scientists and sceptics believe that in his affidavit, Roe laid down a template. A big-breasted female Bigfoot strolling across a clearing, turning its head to look back at the witness. A template that Patterson was later to mimic in his famous film. Roe's own daughter drew a famous picture of the beast that he supposedly saw, choosing and following his words to portray it as a hulking, though definitely feminine, hairy beast. So, who was this guy Roe, anyway? Well, actually, this is something of a bone of contention. Now, Daniel Loxton and Donald Prothero, in their 2013 book, Abominable Science, claimed that, in fact, beyond the affidavit, Rowe's claim was never investigated by any researchers, nor did any Bigfoot researchers actually meet him. Rowe, according to them, seems to be a ghost, a figment of believers' fevered imaginations, or perhaps just a fiction of 1950s newspaper writers. This point is often repeated by others who are writing with a sceptical take on Sasquatch. However, it appears that this take on Rowe is now out of date. Later on in 2013, Bigfoot researcher Danny Perez discovered evidence that, in fact, the Vancouver province wrote an article about Rose's sighting, including a photograph of the man himself, on April 23, 1957. I must say, he's a damned handsome man, and many have commented on his resemblance to, of all people, a young Brad Pitt. Perez also made contact with Rose's son, whose name I was unable to discover, and his daughter, Myrtle Walton video also exists of Myrtle speaking about her father's Sasquatch encounter, and a recording of Roe speaking about the sighting himself from a radio interview in either 1957 or 58. The date is unclear, but the video is on YouTube, but the quality of it is too poor really for me to include it here. So there seems to me to be little doubt that Roe himself did exist, and that he reported his Sasquatch sighting at the time as happening pretty much the way it has been passed down to us. There's another important element to this tale. Recall that throughout the first episode of Bigfoot before 1958, I focused to a near fanatical degree on the exact way in which the creatures in the early Sasquatch reports were described. There's a reason for this. Recall how they were sometimes described by Native Americans as being a tribe or as some sort of indigenous people, albeit ones with supernatural powers. Note how, as we get closer to the pivotal year of 1958, whether Sasquatch is described as being an ape-like being or merely a strange sort of human becomes, for me at least, more and more crucial. <laughs> Four, many respected researchers, including some who I really do look up to, see the Roll report with its accompanying illustration of a hairy being as being the single story that finally solidified Sasquatch as being an ape-man and not some kind of feral human. Darren Naish states in his most excellent book, Hunting Monsters, Rowe's view of Bigfoot is significant because it was the first to show the creature as a hairy wild person. Before Rowe's account, Bigfoots were imagined to be indigenous humans. Now they were seen as some sort of missing link, the members of a species that was human-like, but intimated to be a relic of the evolutionary transition between humans and other apes. I think I have to respectfully disagree on this point. My trawling through earlier cases leaves me feeling that the situation is in fact not quite as cut and dry as this. Sasquatch are indeed described as being a type of indigenous tribe in some of the old encounters. But some of these predate the discovery of the gorilla by Europeans, so you can hardly expect them to have used that word at the time, and many of them are from native groups that themselves had no knowledge of, or words for, Non-human primates. So it seems natural that they would refer to him, refer to them, as uh, as some sort of tribe. Add to this the fact that the descriptions of these tribes include giant size, great hairiness, and great strength, all traits of post-row Bigfoot, as well as other wilder supernatural traits that definitely paint them as being something other than human. I admit that the line here is blurred. If one wishes to read into these older cases a description of a merely human tribe, well, the wording and the language is there to support you. But for me, the facts don't match the wording, and I reckon that the idea that Sasquatches were seen as being some kind of human tribe is perhaps an artefact of language more than anything else. The final aspect of the Roe encounter that is important is, of course, its influence on Roger Patterson. Many see Roe's description of his big-breasted hairy beast and the drawing by his daughter, as being a pattern that Patterson would later copy. William Giraldi, in his article, Why Americans Need to Believe in Monsters, an absolutely fa- fantastic article, you absolutely must read that one if you're interested, it even refers to the moment in Rowe's story when the beast strolls away, turning its head over its shoulder to glare at Rowe, as being, quote, Patterson's money shot, unquote. Indeed, Patterson's image of the beast that came to be known as Patty Doing exactly that, in the famous frame 352 of his footage, was to become an icon of cryptozoology the world around. It's that one image of Bigfoot you see absolutely everywhere, on every t-shirt, on every mug. But for me, this is looking backwards and spotting patterns after the fact. Much is made of the unlikeliness of Patterson conceiving of a female Bigfoot for his hoax. Therefore, sceptics contend he must have taken the idea from Roe but is the idea of a female Bigfoot really so unlikely? Most animals on earth have males and females, and it's quite common for them to exist in roughly equal numbers. Therefore, if this is a real natural creature we're talking about, you're as likely to see a male as you are a female, or the other way around. And this is certainly true of great apes. And back in part one, we heard the tales of female Sasquatch go back at least as far as J.W. Burns' articles of the 1920s. Look, we know that Patterson knew about Rose's tale. It's incontestable. Patterson, after all, wasn't some random guy who stumbled onto Bigfoot in the Californian wilderness. He was a Sasquatch buff. He had even written a book about it in 1966, the year before his fateful encounter. Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? That's actually the title he gave it. And in his book, he retells the tale of William Rose's encounter with the female Sasquatch. His book, however, is problematic, though for an unexpected reason. Patterson, a pretty decent artist, actually plagiarised several illustrations for his book. In True Magazine, in December 1959, famous cryptozoologist Ivan T. Sanderson provided an article called The Strange Story of America's Abominable Snowman. The story focused on William Rose's story and featured an illustration by one Mort Kunstler, of rose busty beast striding across the frame. I must say the picture is very reminiscent of Patty. She's bulky, stocky, hairy and has prominent breasts. Patterson liked the picture enough to ink his own version of it for his book, alongside other Sasquatch illustrations he copied from other artists. That Patterson later encountered and filmed a female Sasquatch, does not seem that sketchy to me. After all, if the creatures are real, then females must be about as common as males. But something about Kunstler's illustration seems so close to Patty that I have to wonder. I mean, it's certainly far from being proof that Patterson faked his film, but it's yet another obfuscation in a story that desperately needs more clarity. William Giraldi, in his article, refers to the Patterson-Gimlin film as being the one thing keeping the Bigfoot myth on life support, since 1967 until the present. The one piece of evidence that still mystifies, still fascinates, and still hasn't been conclusively debunked, even by those who instinctively see in it nothing more than a man in a suit. But that's still in the future. For before we get stuck into the tale of Roger Patterson's later adventures, we have to return to 1958, the year when Bigfoot got his name. The men? Jerry Crew and Ray Wallace. The place? The appropriately named Bluff Creek, California. This was ground zero for Bigfoot. And so it's time. Time to descend through the fog of legend and the mists of time to find out why indeed this mini-series is called Bigfoot before 1958. To find out why 1958 was the key year for Sasquatch. Plenty had changed since the days when J.W. Burns made Sasquatch a local curiosity in British Columbia. Between 1929, when Burns' article first introduced the hairy wild man to the Western world, and the late 50s, when Roe told his influential story, giant wild men had taken off in media in ways that earlier Bigfooters could only have imagined. In 1951, the Sri Lankan-born British climber, Eric Shipton, had photographed what appeared to be Yeti prints in the Menlong Basin on Mount Everest. The photographs, and the monster, became a sensation. As I've noted before, Right up until the late 60s, the American media frequently used the term abominable snowman, even when referring to American wild men. In 1957, the same year of Rose's Affidavit, though of course he claimed his sighting had taken place two years earlier, an early British hammer horror film called, what else, The Abominable Snowman, premiered, written by the great Nigel Neal and starring the incomparable Pier Cushing and the gorgeous Maureen Connell, introduced the idea of monstrous ape men to an even wider audience. Well, well worth a look if you can track this film down. And shortly before Roe made his report, the town of Harrison Hot Springs, where Burns had written his early articles, proposed running a Sasquatch hunt as a spoof community event to drum up interest in the town. Some have proposed that this gave Rowe the idea to make, or make up, his Bigfoot report. Other characters, such as the infamous Albert Ostman, also popped up at about this time to share Sasquatch stories that had supposedly happened decades earlier, though I suspect that his particular fantasy owed more to the Bigfoot fever of 1957 than to the truth of 1924 which was the date upon which he claimed to have been abducted by a Bigfoot family. And so we can see that there were many, many Sasquatch-shaped thought forms floating in the ether just before that key year of 1958. As I always say, the world was somehow ready for Bigfoot in 1958. On August 27th that year, logger Jerry Crewe, working for the Wallace Brothers Logging Company, passed through the town of Willow Creek, California, a town soon to be consumed by Bigfoot mania. He drove along the Klamath River and into the borders of the Shasta Trinity National Forest and the Hoopa Indian Reservation. At Bluff Creek Road, he arrived at the site, deep amid heavily forested, unlogged territory, where his company were beginning to make inroads into the wilderness. It was the kind of place where one could imagine anything could be lurking. Marion Place, in her book, On the Track of Bigfoot, describes the area. Thousands of square miles of wilderness, so rugged that it has been surveyed only from the air, are drained by Bluff Creek. Its watershed is bounded on the north by the Siskiyou Mountains, on the east by the Klamath and the Salmon Mountains, on the south by the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation and on the west by small growths of redwood trees and the coast range of mountains bordering the Pacific Ocean. Crewe entered a timber access road constructed solely to aid the logging his company was undertaking. He had returned home for the weekend, but lived in this remote site, along with about 30 other workers, both white men and Hoopa natives, for much of the week. That Monday morning, Jerry Crew found the mysterious tracks of bare feet stomped into the earth all around his bulldozer. Big feet. The feet that had made these tracks were not those of a bear or any other animal that roamed the California forests. They were bare human feet, but oversized. Crew asked the other workmen what they thought. It turned out that similar footprints had been observed on other Wallace Company work sites at other locations in the Pacific Northwest. Newspapers had even covered a similar story back in 1947, though it never blew up into a well-known sensation. One of the men told how the summer before, a 450-pound oil drum had been found thrown across the site as though tossed by some giant. Ray Wallace's brother, nicknamed Shorty, laughed and jokingly suggested that they notify him if they saw any apes around the camp, showing that the idea of a mysterious monstrous ape in the Californian forests was perhaps not exactly a new addition to the local folklore. Soon, Bigfoot, as the loggers began to call this unknown miscreant, became the star of any number of camp stories. It's almost impossible to know, so many years on, exactly how seriously all of this was taken. It's quite possible that Bigfoot was nothing more than a joke, a legend, especially since it was recognised by at least some of the workers that their boss, Ray Wallace, was a known prankster. Betty Allen, a journalist, reported that Bigfoot was ru- rumoured to have killed some of the camp dogs and that some of the workers slept with their rifles, in case the great ape attacked them. Perhaps, as author Joshua Bluebell states in his book Bigfoot, the Life and Times of a Legend, Bigfoot ought to be seen as a part of the logging man's folklore of the day, alongside Paul Bunyan, the mythical alpha woodsman, or the hodag, a fictional joke animal similar to the jackalope or the Australian drop bear. When more tracks appeared at the Bluff Creek camp a month later, the local newspapers took notice. Crewe no longer believed it to be a hoax or a joke, but in fact a real creature. He sent plaster casts of one of the prints to impress a local taxidermist, Bob Titmus, and though Titmus was not convinced at the time, the word somehow got to one Andrew Gonzoli of the newspaper The Humble Times. Typically He used the term abominable snowman to describe Crewe's monster in his first column on the subject. Gonzoli met Crewe and photographed him holding the massive plaster cast, Crewe deliberately holding a solemn face in order that he might be taken more seriously. This article finally did for Bigfoot, as the Humboldt Times finally rechristened the rebooted Sasquatch, what the Shipton photograph had done for the abominable snowman. The national newspapers picked up on the story, making Gonzoli's new critter a household term across America. Gonzoli supposedly didn't take the subject too seriously himself, perhaps correctly judging that Bigfoot was exactly the kind of escape that the world needed at a troubled time. How could he have known that Bigfoot was, in fact, to serve as an escape for many men seeking to leave behind their everyday troubles in search of adventure and mystery? Over the next 80 years, the appearance of footprints as well as the movement of heavy logging equipment continued. At the time, Wallace had been out of the area, visiting another of his logging sites, though he could, of course, have arranged for the hoax to have been carried out by others on his behalf. Wallace has always been the main suspect uh, by those who believe the event to have been a hoax. Upon his return, he vigorously denied being responsible for the giant footprints. Hopefully, too, the quote from Marion Place's book impresses upon the listener just how remote the location was at the time and how much effort a hoaxer would have to go to in order to keep up this charade. As Jeff Meldrum notes in his book, Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science, Some men lived in camp at the site and there was always someone there nights and weekends. It was more than an hour's drive over the mountain on a precarious dirt road to get to the site, and there was only one way in and out. Thieves or hoaxers would have to go right through the camp to get to the construction site where the tracks were made. The footprints disrupted the everyday working of the site, and many workers left as a result. Though Bigfoot had become a cause célèbre throughout the US, Wallace made no real money from this disruption to his operation, and in fact reported in a personal letter that he lost $40,000 as a result of the uproar. What happened to both Crewe and Wallace in the years after 1958 bear looking at. Crewe himself, a God-fearing, church-going man, eventually came to the odd belief that Bigfoot must be some kind of demon sent to the California forest to test our faith, specifically those of us who had sinned by believing that men were descended from monkeys. I can't say that this idea ever really took off, even amongst the woolier, fringe, paranormal Bigfoot believers who were soon to enter the frame. More on them later. Aside from this, Crewe pretty much exits the Bigfoot world at this time. Wallace, however, was to have a long and extremely strange career in Bigfootery, bringing much notoriety but also much disrepute to the field. He became obsessed with Bigfoot, becoming a repeat witness to multiple sightings over the rest of his life, each one more absurd than the last. He seemed to receive visits from the big guy pretty much on command and spent years peddling pathetic faked photographs and film of his supposed encounters. Bigfoot researcher John Green quoted Wallace as saying, Bigfoot used to be very tame, as I have seen him almost every morning on the way to work. I would sit in my pickup and toss apples out of the window to him. He never did catch an apple, but he sure tried. Then he ate the apples. I would have my movie camera clipping off more footage of him. I have talked to several movie companies about selling my movies which would last for three hours. The best offer I've had so far is $250,000. This unfortunate claim seems to place Wallace in the rather dubious category of Bigfoot habituation believers. But perhaps Wallace's worst transgression came after his death. In December 2002, after Wallace went to the big monster hunt in the sky his own family came out with an astonishing story. Ray had faked the original 1958 prints. Yes, Bigfoot's ground zero, the jumping-off point for 90% of all Bigfoot culture that came after, was a sham. The Wallaces claimed to have possession of giant carved wooden feet made by a man named Rant Mullins, claiming that Wallace had worn these to fake footprints in his logging camps while dangling from the back of a pickup truck. Newspaper headlines everywhere carried the news that Bigfoot had forever been outed as a fake. And for many, the story ends there. After all, Wallace was a known prankster. His career of pathetically trying to profit off Bigfoot had always shown him to be just like they said. Surely these wooden feet were the final nail in the oversized coffin. But Bigfoot believers looked closer. Not everything added up. Various members of Wallace's family told inconsistent versions of the story. Wallace only made the initial prints. Wallace made all of the prints. Wallace made every print ever recorded in the Pacific Northwest. Wallace was the man in the patty suit in the 1967 PG film. It just didn't seem realistic. And despite his years of absurd Bigfoot-related claims... Wallace himself never said that he made the 1958 prints, even though he had been displaying wooden stompers, fake Bigfoot feet, as a feature of his roadside tourist show ever since the 1960s. But most damning of all, was something that anyone can see for themselves, should they take the time to. Neither Wallace's fake feet, nor the ones that Mullins produced himself, look anything like the photos or the casts of the 1958 Bluff Creek prints. Look for yourself. The Stompers are blocky, simplistic. Now, this doesn't mean that the Bluff Creek prints have to be real, but it does mean that both Mullins and the Wallaces lied about creating them. They're simply not the same shape. They're not the same size either, being quite a bit smaller than the 16-inch prints found in 1958 on Bluff Creek. Attempts by reporters to even walk a few yards in the clumsy shoes resulted in awkward shuffling and indistinct prints at best, pratfalls in the mud at worst. And as for making prints while hanging out of the back of a truck, well, those who were familiar with the remote and thickly wooded terrain in which some of the original prints were found were quick to rule that out as impractical if not downright impossible. Don't forget, later tracks found in the area went on for long areas, up to 600 prints over terrain impossible to walk through while wearing the stompers and with strides longer than a man could easily make. Now, it can be argued that Wallace's stompers do match some of the later prints found in Bluff Creek and other areas. It is certainly likely that someone was faking prints in the wake of Jerry Crew's initial sensational find. And it could well have been Wallace, or it could have been that Wallace used these later prints as the model for his own carved feet. We'll probably never know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised either way. In all, this episode reminds one that just because a sceptical explanation has been proposed, it ought not to be accepted without critical analysis. Ray Wallace was a slippery fish, difficult to pin down. It's tough to know whether he was a conniving con artist or a true believer. That he played such an important role in the genesis of modern Bigfoot lore is frustrating to the researcher. There's much we'll probably never know for sure. Soon, the telling and retelling of the Bluff Creek incident would result in so many researchers in prints, casts and tracks, friendships and feuds, that it seems as if the very trails of Bluff Creek itself must have been stamped flat, trampling any clear view of the original phenomenon into a muddy, indistinct mess. In the mid-1990s, ecologist Robert Michael Pyle met an ageing Ray Wallace. You can decide for yourself whether his encounter with the old guy clears up any of the confusion surrounding his character. From his excellent book, soon to be a movie, where Bigfoot walks, crossing the dark divide, he writes... Ray's hearing has been damaged by constant bulldozer work, and he tends to speak loudly. Much of what he bellowed to me, punctuated by guns, had to do with flying saucers and giants. He played a record he had helped to produce, an LP of ballads by a Johnny Cash-type country singer named Don Jones. Cut in Nashville, the disc included a Bigfoot song mixed with Bigfoot screams that Ray had taped by lowering a microphone into a hole he dynamited out around a trapped Sasquatch. The high-pitched shrieks could have been anything, but Ray maintained that a government counterintelligence machine declared these screams to be no sound of any known animal in the world today. As hokey as Ray's pictures were, he called the Patterson-Gimlin film a fake. I know exactly which Yakima Indian was in that monkey suit, he said. He also claimed Patterson, a cagey guy, stole his screams. I forgot more about Bigfoot than most people ever knew, he said. I worked where they lived. You don't move fast around them when they're standing there with a doggone rock in each hand. Before I left, Ray told me that he actually believed that the Big Feet were Aborigines wearing bearskins. skins. This didn't square with his pictures or the reputed dimensions, but consistency did not seem to be a major roadblock for Ray. According to folks I talked with on the Hoopa Reservation who remembered him, it never has been. There are those, in fact, who believe that Ray began the entire series of modern Northern California episodes himself. He appeared on the scene immediately after the tracks were found near Willow Creek, and he says he knows who was in the monkey suit at Bluff Creek when the Patterson-Gimlin film was made. Perhaps Ray has seen something, perhaps he hasn't. But of course, he is without credibility in the Bigfoot world. The serious searchers will be surprised that I have spent so much space on him, Yet by himself, Ray Wallace embodies the diversity of traits found within the Guild. Intelligence, cleverness, cupidity, guile, wit, judgmentalism, hyperbole, and genuine curiosity. It is clear that he once had the latter, even it has since been bulldozed under his own mountains of bullshit. He was a significant figure in the early 60s stories out of California, and has popped up in Bigfoot lore ever since. With the winning, confident smile that Sanderson had noted, this bulldozer of a man winked at me and said, don't waste your time looking for Bigfoot. We've talked about some of the ways in which pre-1958 Bigfoot encounters, in particular the tale of William Rowe, may have fed into the next big Sasquatch pop culture moment, the Patterson-Gimlin film of 1967. Whatever you believe, the fact remains that in October of that year, two cowboys, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, went out into the forests of Bluff Creek and filmed something, creating a piece of film that was to go down in Bigfoot history. As we've seen, they were not, in fact, disinterested observers, and this was not an astonishing stroke of luck. They were in Bluff Creek that day precisely because of what happened back in 1958, and how it had made the region famous as a Bigfoot hotspot. Patterson, in particular, had been a Bigfoot buff for years, and had visited the area several times before, searching for prints. As we've seen, he had even self-published a book about the big guy the year before. And it was not simply by chance, either, that the pair were carrying a rented 16mm Kodak cine camera. Patterson maintained until his death in 1972 that they had been in the Six Rivers National Forest to film a kind of Bigfoot drama documentary in which they intended to act out famous Bigfoot encounters from times past, chief among them the infamous 1924 Ape Canyon incident that you heard about back in Part 1. I don't wish to say too much more about the PGF, as it's known. If you're into such things, there are places on the internet and in the podcast world where folks have gone into this famous case in far more detail than I have time to do. Suffice it to say that, though much suspicion has been heaped on the character of Roger Patterson, the film has never been definitively proven as a hoax. And Bob Gimlin, after an absence of many decades from the Bigfoot world, has more recently begun speaking at conferences, and his interviews are most definitely worth seeking out. All who know him... ...speak well of his character, and listening to his interviews I must admit is a very interesting experience. I am sceptical of course of the value of witness testimony, ...and Bigfoot is a phenomenon that exists almost solely because of witness testimony. But Gimlin really comes across as a believable trustworthy guy. Whatever I might make of the film itself, whenever I listen to this guy, I want to believe. 1967 seems like a good place to leave the story of how Bigfoot became the modern phenomena we all know and love. The Patterson-Gimlin film built on the public recognition of the beast that was first generated at Bluff Creek in 1958 and sent it into the stratosphere. Everything we associate with Bigfootery today has its roots in these two key encounters. I'm going to finish this episode with something that both harkened back to Bigfoot of times past and pointed a signpost to where things were going to go in the future. In September 1967, only a month before Patterson and Gimlin took their camera into the North California woods, one Ronald Beck sat with his father in the town of Kelso, Washington. His dad told him a story and he duly wrote it down. His dad, of course, was none other than Fred Beck, the hero of the 1924 Ape Canyon story. In this written document, modestly titled I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens, Washington, the elderly Beck retold the tale of how he and four other miners were put under siege in their cabin by ape men for several terrifying hours. It is my intention in this book not only to tell you about the historic encounter I had with these mysterious creatures, but also to reveal to the public what I believe they are. Truth is often stranger than fiction, but the strangeness comes from the clouds surrounding our minds, not from the mystery itself. In this new retelling of the encounter, Beck also strangely downplays some details, stating that the apes did not in fact smash the cabin roof with rocks or knock him unconscious, as was reported at the time. He also hints that his inspiration for speaking up about his encounter now, in 1967, is that hunts and rewards for finding the mysterious animals are now being organised once again. But perhaps the way in which Beck's tale is most prophetic is how it unexpectedly reframes Bigfoot as a mystical, even a metaphysical being, Ape Canyon seems to me to be one of the most obvious examples of Bigfoot as a real flesh-and-blood creature, an unknown but definitely physical animal. Therefore, it's astonishing to me that as early as 1967, Fred Beck is descending into the mystical interpretation of Bigfoot. I say this confident by the evidence of my experiences, things that I have not before revealed to the public. I also say it from the knowledge gained on the subject later. In this book I will reveal thoroughly what I know them to be. First of all I will say that they are not entirely of the world. The events leading up to the ape episode were filled with the psychic element. Since a young man I had always been clairvoyant. In 1922 we found the location of our mind, a spiritual being a large Indian dressed in buckskin, appeared to us and talked to us. He was the picture of stateliness itself. He never told us his name, but we always called him the Great Spirit. He replied once, The Great Spirit is above me. We are all of the Great Spirit if we listen when the Great Spirit talks. There is no doubt in my mind that these beings were present and observing us, but they had not yet appeared in physical form. The abominable snowmen from a lower plane. When the condition and vibration is at a certain frequency, they can easily for a time appear in a very solid body. They are not animal spirits, but they also lack the intelligence of a human consciousness. When reading of evolution, we have read many times conjecture about the missing link between man and the anthropoid ape. The snowmen are a missing link in consciousness, neither animal nor human. They are very close to our dimension and yet are a part of one lore. Could they be the missing link man has been so long searching for? The human soul once dwelled in a spiritual body and eventually incarnated at the fall of man into bodies like we have now. The beings we call abominable snowmen were not of the necessary high development to incarnate in human form. They had not reached that scale of spiritual evolution. One could see this as a return to the original Native American interpretation of Sasquatch. But after much research on the various phenomena of the world of the strange, my own interpretation is not so kind. I have observed time and time again what some refer to as supernatural creep. Basically, exciting new phenomena when they first appear are taken seriously as actual, literal, physical things. Maybe UFOs are physical craft. Maybe ghosts can leave physical traces. Maybe Bigfoot is an actual animal. But over time, as hard evidence fails to appear, believers unwilling to abandon their cherished hopes change the nature of the phenomena. And thus, in place of hard, testable physical happenings, we get astral thought projection UFOs, ghosts from other planes, and Bigfoot as a telepathic, invisible, ultra-terrestrial. When Fred Beck retold the story of Ape Canyon in 1967, a bare month before the Patterson-Gimlin film would set the world alight with Bigfoot mania for a second time, he also planted the seeds for the demise of serious scientific inquiry into the phenomena, leading us, unfortunately, to where we are today. The days of rational thinking and searching for a possibly physical being would be replaced in time, almost entirely, by Fred Beck's mystical, invisible, dimension-hopping, non-evidence-leaving super-being. And that, my friends, is the end of Bigfoot before 1958. You've been listening to a particularly squatchy episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that dares to ask why people believe weird things. My name is Kean and I've been coming to you straight from the Wide Atlantic Weird cabin. If you like what you hear and you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter. Twitter, as we always say, is a terrible, terrible place. But if you'd like to make it just a tiny little bit better, please do get in touch with us where we are at Strange Ireland. We like to hear good things, bad things, friendly things and not so friendly things. In fact, if you have any positive things to say, we'll put them on the show and you can hear them next time. If you'd like to help us out, please do leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Reviews go a long way towards making us more visible and helping more people to find the show. Once again, should you have anything exciting, interesting, witty or funny to say, we'll be very pleased to have it and put it on the show finally, if you've ever had any strange encounters, anything weird or anything you can't explain, please do get in touch. We'd love to have you on the show or tell your story to our listeners. Remember, we want to believe. And thanks for listening.